To me, Kuwait is more than oil and more than the invasion of Iraq. Badr Saif is Kuwaiti. I am from Kuwait, based in Kuwait. I'm an assistant professor of history at Kuwait University. And I'm a non-resident fellow with the Carnegie Middle East Center as well. He knows Kuwait from the inside. And he knows what people think about when they think about Kuwait. Oil and Iraq. The international news and audiences abroad still equate Kuwait with these two files. We in Kuwait are already looking post-oil, and we've already opened a new chapter with Iraq. And now, Dr. Arsaif is challenging the world to think about Kuwait again. I would hope that they think of Kuwait as a state of institutions, as a place of relative openness. I'm Malika Bilal, and for today's Quick Take, we're heading to the Gulf nation of Kuwait. The emir, Sheikh Sabah al-Ahmed al-Jabal al-Sabah, passed away this week at the age of 91. And a new emir and half-brother to the old one, Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmed al-Sabah, has taken his place. But what kind of country did Sheikh Sabah, the former emir, create? What will happen now? And what kind of difference will it make? So I'm 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 sorry to hear about the loss of of the emir. Thanks for your kind words. What were you doing when you heard that news? I was actually um, conducting a final exam with my university students, as with the news was coming in, but there wasn't anything confirmed, and I could sense the worries in some of my students. It, it was an oral uh, exam, and some of them were telling me how stressed they were, just thinking of there could be some drastic changes in Kuwait with the passing of the emir. And then the news came officially around 5 p.m. our time. And looking down the street, it just it went very quiet. The streets have gone very quiet. The country is in a sullen type of mood. There is sadness in the air. Kuwaiti radio and television stations are broadcasting passages from the Qur'an and have been remembering the emir over the last several days. With the deep sorrow, the state of Kuwait mourns uh, the demise of His Highness, uh, the late Emir of Kuwait, uh, Sheikh Sabah al-Ahmed al-Jabr al-Sabah. The Emir died at age 91. He's been in the States for over two months for medical treatments. But it's still something Kuwaitis and residents in Kuwait feels a great loss because he's a great leader who has done so much for Kuwait and the region. And he has been a voice of moderation in a very disturbing time. Have you had the chance to meet the emir or see him in person? So I was uh, an advisor at the royal court and I worked on a national youth conference under his auspices. An advisor to the royal court. Not everyone can relate to that. Oh, that was just an advisory position that I held back in the day and then it transformed into a ministry that deals with youth affairs under the auspices of the late Emir. He had an upbeat personality that always dons his smile, open to people, patient, listens to everyone with a keen eye to detail. He was your above-average diplomat. 
And Dr. Al-Saif says diplomacy is important to Sheikh Sabah's story. His well-honed skills in diplomacy and mediation were increasingly relied on by other Gulf states, a role he appeared to welcome, and one that will be missed. When the emir was born, Kuwait was a completely different country, reliant on pearl diving and dates for their economy. And the pearl business wasn't doing well. Then, thanks to the discovery of oil in the first decade of the emir's life, Kuwait changed. It's now one of the richest countries in the world. He was able to see that transformation from one Kuwait to another, from one type of economy to the other. You could safely say that he's among a handful of those that would be considered the architects of modern Kuwait. That gives you that humbleness and that patience to persevere. And we've seen that happen with His Highness in various episodes in Kuwait's narrative, if you may, whether in the occupation of Kuwait in the 1990s with the different wars that the region has gone through or the different rifts that the Gulf Cooperation Council has witnessed as well. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in, in 1990, the emir was foreign minister. How did what happened influence him? And how did it change the country as a whole? Kuwait went through a transformational period when it lost its sovereignty for around seven months. On the morning of August 2nd, thousands of people in Kuwait City woke up to war. More than 1,000 civilians were killed and hundreds went missing during the seven-month Iraqi occupation. And him and the rest of the government and society at large was trying to push forward to ensuring that the country goes back to what it was, an independent state. So he worked very hard towards that end. After a U.S.-led air campaign forced Iraqi troops out of Kuwait, Sabah was closely involved in rebuilding his country. He was one of the longest serving foreign ministers in the region, if not in the world, for 40 years plus. And Dr. Al-Saif says it was the years after the Iraqi invasion that Sheikh Sabah's 40 years of diplomacy started to show. I would credit the late emir with having the foresight and the wisdom to not shun neighbors and, and, and countries that did not stand by Kuwait at the time and to be among the first countries to extend its hand to the Iraq that came out after the Gulf War in 2003. There wasn't much outreach to Iraq at the time by various Arab neighbors. Kuwait was among the first and it was firm on mending any type of bitterness with the Iraq of the past. And he was the first monarch in the region to visit Iraq post-Saddam. Sheikh Sabah made a visit to Iraq in 2012, and it made headlines. Kuwait's emir was the only Gulf leader to come to Baghdad, having resolved the bitter fallout from Iraq's 1990 invasion of Kuwait. It was a remarkable gesture. Sheikh Sabah started a diplomatic relationship that would last decades. That took everyone at a surprise. And he, he was keen on, you know, ensuring that Kuwait remains a voice of peace. Kuwait hosted an Iraq reconstruction summit that saw the attendance of various states and the World Bank. There were pledges around 30 billion plus dollars. And it wasn't just Iraq. He made efforts to help mend the Syrian war, the war in Yemen and the Lebanese civil war before that, by brokering negotiations and offering humanitarian assistance as well. 
the brand Kuwait developed under his leadership as a foreign minister. He continued that theme as he assumed power in 2006, while he was the ruler of the country. And there's a very strategic reason for this, Dr. Al-Saif told us. Kuwait knows its size. It knows that it's a small state among larger neighbors. And it is there to ensure that everyone respects everyone else and that they all work together toward a common good. Another thing that people may not be aware of, or at least many people may not be aware of, is the relationship between Kuwait and the Palestinians and the Palestinian cause. So Kuwait was the first Arab country to invite Palestinian refugees. Can you talk to me about what happened there? That's very true. And Kuwait was also the land in which the most key Palestinian factions were founded. Fatah was founded in Kuwait. And so was Hamas, by the way. In the 1930s, the first batch of educators that came when modern education started in Kuwait was from Palestine. And many of those families are amongst us. They've become naturalized Kuwaitis even. And there is a legacy and there is a history that we're very proud of. Recently, the late emir resisted pressure to follow neighboring countries, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, into signing a deal normalizing relations with Israel. After the news of the emir's death, our producer in the occupied West Bank, Rania Zabane, tweeted the thoughts of many Palestinians. Quote, Palestinian officials have been commending Kuwait for refusing to normalize relations with Israel before ending the occupation. But relations haven't always been warm. They were frozen in 1990 until Abbas apologized in 2004 for Palestinian support of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. So there were bruises in that relationship, but at this point, they seem to have largely healed. Dr. Al-Saif says resolving conflict also helped the former emir with internal politics. Kuwait is a country of institutions. It has a, a, a detailed constitution. He worked hard on ensuring that women get their vote. And they did get that in 2005 when he was a prime minister. And right after the vote went through, Malika, within a month, if not less, he named the first woman minister. So for someone to do this, that tells you that he is inclusive, he, he believes in diversity, he believes in equal opportunity. When the so-called Arab Spring erupted in 2011, Kuwait was not immune. Residents took to the streets with complaints about bribes and corruption, including allegations that more than a dozen members of parliament were handed millions of dollars for their votes. And in November, it culminated with around 50,000 demonstrating. At that point, the late emir responded. Responded by sacking his nephew, the prime minister, which was the first in Kuwait's political history. We've never seen that happen before. And we saw a new prime minister come in with a new government and agenda and an attempt to accommodate as much of the demands of the people who were, you know, like everyone else in the region, striving for more freedoms, for more openness. In the past few years, the Gulf has been dealing with the blockade of Qatar. Is that something you think the emir saw coming? If you remember, in June 2017, he was um, 88 years old. He shuttled between those different capitals 
Doha, Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, trying to understand what took place and how to avert this issue. When GCC member states Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, along with Egypt, accused Qatar of supporting what they described as terrorism and imposed a land, air and sea blockade, it was him who intervened. And I would say this has preoccupied him in the past few years and he would have wished to see a fair resolution that preserves everyone's interests while maintaining the sovereignty uh, and integrity of each nation-state in the region. So what happens now for Kuwait? So the, the emir has gone, but Kuwait lives on, starting from the new leadership, the current emir, Sheikh Nawab. I do not foresee much change in the foreign policy of Kuwait. We have a parliament that are held accountable by the people. So changing views doesn't happen overnight in Kuwait. The new emir previously held the positions of interior minister and minister of defense. And Dr. Al-Saif says he may be focused on some internal changes now. Kuwait has never fully resolved the issue of corruption, which came up in the 2011 uprising. He'll be ensuring that a lot of concrete steps are taken to tackle a lot of the corruption that has been erupting in the past few years, in the past year with among even senior members of the ruling family, some of them who are now under investigation and some are serving prison uh, sentences until the their cases are cleared. So I think this would be high on his agenda. We touched briefly on your students in class and how people were feeling. How do you expect things to feel as the week goes on? I think Kuwaitis and residents of Kuwait will pause as any country that has that connection with its leader to reflect on his legacy, his achievements. In 2015, Kuwait was hit by a terrorist attack on one of its Shiite mosques. A suicide bomb exploded in a packed mosque in the east of Kuwait City, killing 26 people. And within minutes of him, the emir, hearing about this, he disregarded all security protocols. He drove in with his car. The emir immediately rushed to the mosque despite security warnings, sharing his sympathy with the people. And he went straight there, hugging all the victims that were around and trying to ensure that everyone is fine and, and tearing. Yeah, we have pictures of them tearing and saying, these are my kids. As you know, Kuwait is a majority Sunni country, but with a sizable Shiite community. So for him to say this and to reach out to all components of society is a big thing. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Oni Wohacha, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. And we have a new podcast series for you from Al Jazeera. It's called Hindsight. Mohamed Morsi, Zaha Hadid, Lawrence of Arabia. You've heard of them, but what if you could hear from them? That's what this podcast is about. Historical figures tell you their stories. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back.
I bet you couldn't wait for that noose to be wrapped around my neck. Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? I believed in the Arabs' cause, and that changed everything. Well, this is it. I'm Charles Dance. Hindsight, a dramatized podcast that resurrects some of the world's most memorable figures by recreating their past. I refused to follow the herd, so I didn't. I just stayed there. The famous and infamous of politics and culture. They had been looking for new talent, someone to change the face of French music. And they chose me. History and society. My critics were dying for me to fail. It felt good to disappoint them. Heroes and villains. The term is double agent. These are the stories of their lives, based on documented events and their own words. There was nowhere I could go to escape Lawrence of Arabia. Me, Mohammed Morsi, president of Egypt? You've heard of them? Dame Zaha Hadid. But now it's time to hear from them. And so, Dalida was born. I am Saddam Hussein al-Majid. Hindsight from Al Jazeera. Wherever you get your podcasts.